Would you guys uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 32? Psalm 32, if you're joining us uh, for the first time or it's been a while, my name is Robbie, one of the pastors here, uh, and also we've been making our way through uh, a series of psalms just over the summer. It's going to run till September 4th, and it's just we're going through various psalms in the book of Psalms. And <clears throat> one thing that we've said a few different times is that one of the greatest gifts of the psalms is that they're both theologically rich and they are so practical in that they consistently help us to take our eyes off of ourselves and to look at God. And the Psalms always help us to see God for who He is, and they help us to see ourselves for who we are. And it is there, when we see God for who He is, and this is such a gift, that we are truly most satisfied in our own lives. And so for us, these passages really are just so practical. This morning, we're going to go to Psalm 32 to see who God is. And if you are a follower of Jesus, this Psalm is for you. If you have never placed your faith in Jesus, I think this psalm will draw you closer to him. And so really the psalm this morning is for everyone. I read a story this week about a famous playwright named Noel Coward. And the story is that he pulled a prank and sent an identical note to 20 of the most famous men in London. And this is what his anonymous note that was sent out to 20 of the most famous men said. It said this, everybody has found out what you are doing. If I were you, I would get out of town. It's kind of a funny joke, and maybe you're considering playing it yourself. But supposedly, as the story goes, all 20 of the men who received this note, they actually left town. And it's a funny prank, but it causes me to wonder something. If I opened a letter like that, don't send me one, please. But if I opened a letter like that, or what if you opened your mail today or whenever the mail comes and you found out or found a letter like that, what would race through your mind? Would you think, oh my goodness, what do they know about me? Do they know what I'm doing on the internet? Do they, have they seen how I've misused my expense account? Do they know that I misinterpret the facts, which is really just a fancy way of saying lie? And, and here's a very real reality for probably all of us. I think we could look at the 20 most famous men of London and laugh at them, but we all want to hide from what is ugly in our own lives. We don't want anyone to know that. We, we don't want our, even our wives to know that. And the thought of anyone finding out what makes us crawl or uncomfortable just makes us sick to our stomach. And what is crazy is that I think a lot of us even want to hide our ugly side from God. We, we would hate it if he knew what we were thinking about or doing. But maybe you remember this a few weeks ago, Pastor Dan preached on Psalm 139. And if you haven't listened to that message, I would highly recommend that you go back and listen to it. Psalm 139, it's from two weeks ago. But in Psalm 139, verse 2, it says this about what God knows about you and me. It says, you know, when I sit and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. It, it, maybe that verse makes your skin crawl. It kind of makes my skin crawl to think that anyone would know what I am doing 
And Psalm 139 says that God knows. And this is a problem for us who would like to hide our ugly stuff. We've all sinned. We are all currently sinners. If you've been a believer for decades, you actually are probably more aware of your sin than most people. Um, look at John, what John writes in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. He says this, if we, and, th- and John, you should know that when John wrote this, he was a very old man. He wrote this, and this is about himself too. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So we're all sinners, right? And some of you are like, gosh, I'm just visiting this church for the first time. What a downer. We are. It's just truth. It's the reality. And honestly, one of the greatest gifts a preacher can give you is just to say what it is, right? It's the truth. We're sinners. I am. But what do we do? Sin. So, uh, someone has said that sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. So should we just be depressed then today? I, I think that Psalm 32 actually is a very encouraging passage when we think this morning about coming out of hiding, what God is actually calling us to do for those of us who are sinners, which is all of us. Let's start with some quick background for this psalm. Psalm 32 was written by King David, and you could read actually Psalm 32 if you wanted to and Psalm 51 together because both Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 were written actually after David tried to hide his sin. And maybe you remember this story, but in Psalm, or sorry, 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, while David's armies went off to war, he stayed by, behind in Jerusalem and he seduced an officer's wife. Do you remember who that was? Yeah, good. Bathsheba. So her name was Bathsheba, and she, was, she became pregnant, and uh, when she became pregnant, after David had seduced her, David arranged for her husband through a series of events, Uriah, to be killed in battle. And so King David, the man after God's own heart, let me remind you, had adultery and murder on his hands. And what did he do? And we know this because we went through a David study. If you were part of Hillside even just half a year ago, we know what David did. He tried to hide his sin for a long time. And then after a long period of time, God called the prophet Nathan to confront David. And long story short, David was broken and he confessed his sin. And what David does in Psalm chapter 51, and then the psalm we're reading today, Psalm 32 is he teaches us what it looks like to repent. For anyone who has sinned against God, he's going to teach us this morning about the blessedness of forgiveness that is found only in God. And as we look at Psalm 32 this morning, I want you to remember where David is coming from, that this psalm is actually best understood in the context of David's sin with Bathsheba and his innate desire to hide his sin. Let me ask you a couple of questions before we dive into this psalm. And sometimes a a preacher will say, let me ask you questions, and you sort of tune them out. But think about these for a second. What do you do when you sin? We've established that we're all sinners. What do you do when you sin? Do you try to hide your sin from God? Do you justify your actions? Do you see sin as harmless as long as nobody finds out? Or do you see your sin for what it is, something that alienates you from God. 
Psalm 32 is going to teach this reality to us this morning. Sin destroys us and our relationship with God. But godly confession and repentance brings healing and joy and freedom. That's the promise. Healing and joy and freedom. Is anybody interested in that? I am. Look with me at Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. They say this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So Psalm 32 starts with a promise from David. It's two different versions of it. It says blessing, blessed twice, right? Listen to this because we are all looking to be blessed. I don't know anyone who would say they don't want to be blessed. The first word that David used to describe the forgiveness of sins is the word blessed. David declares a double blessing on the person that God forgives. David is saying in this song, trust me, from my own experience, I have sinned, I am a big sinner, and I am telling you that happy is the man against whom God counts no iniquity. I know the reality of being miserable, and I am telling you that forgiveness is the answer to that problem. We like to think of blessing as health and wealth, and I think David would probably say to us, sure, a new car would be nice, but let me tell you, nothing is compared to the joy of knowing that God is kind and forgiving, and that is the core of blessing. That is the happiness and the freedom that you want and that you need. David says, the forgiven are the ones who are happy and blessed. Why does David say this? Why would that come out of his mouth? Does does he have any proof? Yes, he has tons of proof. He's going to expound on it in verses 3 through 4. But right here, he also tells us that the forgiven are happy and they are blessed because God's forgiveness is complete forgiveness. The blessing David has experienced is the full forgiveness of his sin. Well, how can we know this to be true? Well, one, God knows everything about David. He knows when he sits. He knows what's in his thoughts. So who can forgive David more than the one that knows everything about him? But two, David actually uses three synonyms for sin in verses 1 and 2 that will help us understand what it means to be fully forgiven. He isn't just being redundant. He's not just using flowery language. He wants us to see the full scope of our sin and the full spectrum of God's forgiveness. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 again. They say this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And so David uses three words for sin. Did you see them? Transgression in verse 1, sin in verse 1, and then iniquity in verse 2. You might be saying, okay, well, they're they're all the same thing. How are they different? Don't they all mean the same thing? Well, kind of. But transgression refers to open rebellion and dishonesty or disloyalty, a departure grounded in defiance. What transgression is, is it is willful sin. God created man in his his image, right? We know that from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We were made to live on this earth as his representatives when we transgress, we rebel against what God created us for. And so when you think of the word transgression, think of the word traitor. 
When we transgress, we're like traitors. Think of someone like who was born in America but now fights for Al-Qaeda. We would call them a traitor, right? That's a transgressor. It is a willful rebellion against who you are. It would be like being from Vermilion but cheering for the jackrabbits. You're a traitor. I, was, I don't know if that's true or not. It would be like being in this church and cheering for Iowa. I'm a Nebraska fan. I'm, okay. <clears throat> it's a transgression to be born something and then do something differently. In the context of this passage, it is David with Bathsheba. David knew full well what he was doing wrong. His sin was willful sin. That's transgression. The second word that David uses, sin. Sin is defined as missing the mark. It's an archery term. I know plenty of you shoot archery, bows, but, uh, and know what it means to hit the bullseye. But for me, another way to describe this that was maybe easier for me to understand was the game of golf. You line up in your stance to hit the ball onto the green, but instead you hook the ball off into the trees. Anybody? <laughs> me, every time. Dan and I went golfing last week, two weeks ago. We lost 12 balls together. Nine holes. Pretty good. Uh, but it's the idea of not hitting what you're aiming at. Your goal was the green. The idea was never to hit the trees or the sand or the water and lose 12 balls. That was never the goal. This is a picture of sin. We try to follow Christ, but we still miss the mark. The third word for sin that David uses in verse 2 is this word iniquity, and it can be defined like this. It means crookedness or perversion or waywardness. The Hebrew word carries the idea of corrupt or twisted. You might wonder why it matters to this text, why I would draw those three words out for you. Well, these three words describe for us all of the different facets of sin. The first word describes our relationship to God. We have rebelled against Him. The second word describes our relationship to God's law. We fall short or miss the mark. And the third word describes the effect that those sins have on our lives they make us crooked and perverse or guilty before God. And what David is doing here is he is helping us to see the human condition because of sin. It's all-encompassing. Far from God, missing our goal, and the result is guilty. But maybe you're still asking, well, why would David go to such verbal lengths to portray his sin? My sense is that he does this to emphasize that every sin, Whatever its cause or character, intentional or inadvertent, that all sin can be forgiven. That's good news. The most important part of verses 1 and 2 is not the nature of sin. The most important part is the reality that all sin can be forgiven. Look at what David does in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 32. He matches each word for sin with three words that mean pardon. And if you're tired of verses 1 and 2, I'm sorry, I'm going to read them to us one more time. They say this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The first word for when David is talking about being forgiven is the word forgiven. It literally means to carry away. The second word he used 
is, is covered, and it has to do with atonement, meaning this, the blood of a sacrifice covered the sins of the people and restored their relationship with God. It is a point to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And then the third word he uses is count, and it's a bookkeeping term. And it means to charge something to an account. And in this verse, it is used to tell us what God does not count. He does not count iniquities against the person who is forgiven. When God forgives, he does not charge your sin to your account. In Romans chapter 4, verses 2 through 8, Paul actually quotes Psalm 32, and it helps us to understand what it means that the Lord counts no iniquity against a forgiven sinner. Look at these verses for a second. It says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted, that's the same word, to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The point of all of this that Paul is making and the point that David is making in Psalm 32 is that when God does not count sin against us, what God is doing is he is declaring us to be righteous. And this is a blessing. This is not a reward for good behavior. It is not a result of good works. The blessed person understands the fullness of their sin and then the fullness of forgiveness that can only come from God and it is only a result of faith in God and it comes only from God's hand. Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2 are the heart of the gospel. We see it in Christ. Our full forgiveness is not a result of what we do. It is a result of God. We don't pay off our debt. God clears the ledger. He deletes the data on the spreadsheet of sin. We do not credit forgiveness to our account. By faith in Christ, God credits full forgiveness to our account. That's good news, isn't it? David starts with this reality of what it means to be forgiven, and he starts with the good stuff, and he begins with what it means to have the weight of sin off of you. He clearly knows the freedom of God's forgiveness, but the question is this, how did he learn that? Well, he actually goes backwards now in verses 3 through 4, and this is his experience before he experiences the blessing of forgiveness. He starts with the blessing, but then he goes to 3 and 4, and they say this, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. This is what David was experiencing prior to what he knew in verses 1 and 2. There's this old Puritan named Thomas Watson who said this way, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And what we saw in verses 1 and 2 is the sweetness that David knew because of the bitterness that he experienced from his sin. David is tasting in verses 3 and 4 the bitterness of his sin. Some of us can read the first part of Psalm 32 that says, Blessed is the one. 
And then we really don't understand the second half where it says whose transgression is forgiven. Why is that true? Because we have this strong tendency to pull a David and try and live as though nothing ever happened when we sin. We, even as Christians, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. I know I have, but even as Christians, we try to believe that our sin isn't that big of a deal. There's an ugly hardness in our hearts, and we do not realize that our deepest problem is our sin against God. What we do often, and maybe this is going to step on some toes. I'm okay with that, I guess. Um, But often what we will do is we'll say this, my deepest issue is money. Or my deepest issue is my reputation. Or my deepest issue is my health. Or my marriage. Or my parenting. Or my work. And if only all of these issues in my life could be solved, then I would be happy and blessed. That would be the ultimate happiness. I want you to hear me so clearly on this, and you can disagree with me all that you want, but I believe it's true from the Scriptures. Those things that I just mentioned, your money, your reputation, your health, your marriage, your children, all of that stuff, they are not your greatest issues in life. I understand that those things can cause stress and anxiety. Believe me, I understand they cause stress and anxiety. And those issues can be symptoms of a bigger problem. But hear me so clearly. Our greatest issue in all of our lives is our alienation from God through our sin. It's our biggest problem. That's the heart of our problems. And what you and I like to do and what David liked to do is we, let, we tend to deny that sin against God is not, it's not our problem. We try so hard to numb our sense of guilt and shame and we try so hard to listen to the Holy Spirit as He prompts us to conviction. Sorry, so, so hard not to listen to the Holy Spirit as He prompts us to conviction. Why did David do this? Why did he try so hard to hide? Why do you and I do this? Well, the quick answer is that it's not in our nature to go to God. We're just like our parents, Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, the Bible says, and this is a paraphrase, but that they heard the Lord walking in the garden and they hid from him. That's our instinct. It's factory installed. Oh, I messed up. I better hide. That's what David is describing in Psalm 32, verses 3 through 4. David kept silent concerning his sin with Bathsheba. And when he covered his sin, it ate away at him. He said his bones wasted away. Physically, he was drained. Emotionally, he was on the ragged edge. And this reality of David's life brings about a strong spiritual truth for us. Sin has a simple, basic spiritual law, and that is this. Confess sin and you will be blessed with the reality of forgiveness. Confess sin and you will be blessed with the reality of forgiveness. Conceal it and you will be miserable. David's words in verses 3 through 4 are the perfect description of the misery of living with a guilty conscience. David felt by the grace of God, he felt the heavy weight of God's hand. And maybe you're there this morning. Maybe you've been there. And I think it's important for us to understand that we don't serve a mean God. 
God is rich in mercy. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. That is the most repeated scripture in all of scripture. That phrase. Rich in mercy, slow to anger, abounding in love. God is not mean. God is the hound of heaven. The faithful father will not let his children go. And the weight of God's hand, if you are feeling it, is a gift. And it was a gift to David. Proverbs 3.12 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. David's psychological pain because of his sin, it's not accidental, it wasn't coincidental, his pain was providential. And let me say this as clearly as I can, if the Holy Spirit is making you miserable because of your sin, this is a sign that God cares for you. He is calling you to repentance. He is inviting you to a better life. He is calling you into freedom. So what did David do in his misery? Well, the discipline of God humbled him, and then he responded in verse 5. It says this, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Do you notice where David experiences the blessing of forgiveness? When he acknowledged and confessed his sin, he immediately received God's complete forgiveness. When he acknowledged his sin, he immediately received God's complete forgiveness. Look at the pattern. He acknowledged his sin, he confessed his sin, and what happened? He received God's complete forgiveness. David says, I acknowledge my sin to you. He is no longer in any way attempting to hide or to cover up or to conceal his iniquity and his corruption." David now sees his sin as God sees it. He calls his sin what God calls them. And David does not downplay it at all. He isn't flippant with what he's done. He feels the weight of his sin. He knows that it is his biggest problem. And he confesses that to God. And what is the result? Does God say, okay, David, now here's like 45 things I need you to do to get right. Or I'm sorry, you went too far. You're never going to get back. No, the result is this. According to Psalm 32, immediate forgiveness. David has experienced God's forgiveness, and so he goes on from verses 5 to verses 6 and 7. And if you're afraid I'm about to preach another 45 minutes, don't worry, I'm about to really cruise through the rest of these verses, okay? So hold on, kids and uh, probably dads. Okay, verses 6 and 7 say this, in an effort to teach God's people where to go for their own forgiveness, it says this, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. He says this about God. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Did you notice the turnaround there? The same man in verse 4 that complained that he was oppressed by God's hand is now in these verses declaring that God is his hiding place. What happened? David was hiding from God like we often do, and now he is hiding in him. He urges his reader, all of us, to pray and find their refuge in God. And then he says, when you do this, there's a great result. Look at verses 8 through 9. This is a promise from God. These are God's words to David. They say this, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. 
what these verses are saying to us, to, to you and me and to David, is this. God will teach and guide the person who is sensitive to him. If we confess our sins and we grow in sensitivity to his word, not only will God be our refuge, but he will direct us in his ways. We're not to be stubborn or self-willed like a horse or a mule, but we are to be sensitive to his spirit and to his word, developing a tender conscience. God will use those means to direct the forgiven sinner into paths of righteousness. This is a promise from God. God promises his enduring love for those who confess their sins. David closes out this psalm with verses 10 and 11, and they say this. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. David ends this psalm now by contrasting the wicked who have many sorrows with the righteous who are surrounded by the Lord's unfailing love. Hear hear this, just in case you missed it. David, the man after God's own heart, this is important, proves to us this, the righteous are not those who never sin, but rather those with an upright heart because they have confessed their sins to someone who can do something about it. David gets really loud in verse 11. Why? Because the thought of God's mercy to sinners who don't deserve it, it just makes David scream for joy. The judge of the universe at this point in David's life has pounded his gavel and he's proclaimed this, not guilty, you are free from the weight of your sins, free from condemnation, because Christ has paid the penalty. There is no greater joy than that of knowing that your sins are totally forgiven. God is so good to us. He knows more about us than anyone ever could, and yet he doesn't say Everyone knows what you have done. You should just leave town. God says, acknowledge and confess and I will forgive you. Because he has complete knowledge of us, he can offer us complete forgiveness. There's an old Reformed preacher named John Calvin and he sums this passage up well. He says this, Um, sometimes we like to throw John Cow like the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, if you don't agree with his theology, that's fine. I don't think this should offend you. So here's what he says. David here teaches us that happy, the happiness of men consists only in the forgiveness of sins. For nothing can be more terrible than to have God for our enemy, nor can he be gracious to us in any other way than by pardoning our transgressions. So what do we do with this passage? What does this passage of Scripture teach us about myself? What does this passage teach us about God? Well, I I, want to finish this morning first with a warning. I believe that Satan wants to whisper a false picture of God into your ear anytime he can. Satan would be happy for you this morning to walk away with this picture of a bobble-headed Jesus who's just like, yep, you're good, do whatever you want. 
That's, you, you know what a bobblehead looks like. One who's weak in the knees and thin in the wallet that doesn't know how to deliver you from your sin, but he's happy to keep on blessing you even though you struggle all the time. I think the flip side of that, and Satan would be equally happy for you to believe this about God, is that he would love for you to walk away this morning believing that God is a feel-bad God who's happy for you to feel shame and be disgusted with yourself all of the time. What Satan doesn't want from any of us, Christian or not, is to think that God wants you to be blessed and free and delivered and joyful and upright in heart because of the righteousness that you have in him. Is God serious about sin? Yeah, yes. Why? Because it destroys your life. He isn't weak, but he also isn't mean. He cares. This passage proves it. It's an invitation into freedom. The best thing that you and I can experience is the blessing of forgiveness. This passage tells you and I what we need to continually know. God is never calling me into confession because he wants to hurt me. God is calling me into confession to free me. Why? If you just take one thing home with you this morning, the worship team can come on up. This is why. Because God is so good. God is so good. How did David know the peace and the release and the joy that flooded and pardoned his soul after he murdered someone and committed adultery with somebody else? Look at verse 10. It says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. David knows how good God is because of his steadfast love. God's love is the defense of our lives. It is the bodyguard of our souls, the atmosphere of absolute affection in which we move and live and breathe. How do we know that God loves us? Jesus Christ. Jesus is the greatest picture of the steadfast love of God. This psalm, like every other scripture, in all of scripture, points to Jesus. Jesus' work on the cross as our high priest is the basis for our forgiveness of sins. Your burden can be lifted today. Why? Because Jesus himself bore the weight of your sin on the cross. If you were a follower of Jesus Christ, you are covered by his shed blood. If you were a follower of Christ, then your sin is not charged against you because Jesus has paid the penalty for that sin. This is really good news, isn't it? If you're a Christian today and you are walking in sin right now and you are hiding from God, come to Jesus again. Confess your sin experiencing what you are looking for, freedom and joy and blessing. If you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, can I ask you one question this morning? Why not? (laughs) Why? Wouldn't you love to have what David is describing? Freedom and joy and peace? 
God is good. Look at Jesus. God is not about destroying your life. God is not about manipulating you. God is not about holding you down. God is about your abundant life, and He knows that it starts with knowing Christ, and He knows that it starts by getting out of the weight of your sin. Place your faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross. You might be reading through this passage with me this morning and thinking, well, I never sinned like David. Well, I hope that's true. (laughs) You might never be able to call yourself a murderer or an adulterer, and maybe your sins are more subtle and less public, whether they are fewer or whether they are greater in number. Whatever the case, your only hope and my only hope is in the unfailing love and grace of God that we know in Jesus Christ. God is so good to us. And this morning, he says to you and me, the great blessings of forgiveness are experienced when we confess our sins and we rely on his mercy. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your word again. Thank you, God, that it points to Jesus. Lord, thank you that we can read this passage and see the steadfast and unfailing love that you offer us. Father, this morning I pray that we would all be pushed towards Jesus. In your name, amen. Uh, This morning we're going to take communion together, and maybe you uh, noticed that. Hopefully you noticed that before you sat down. But um, if you would grab your communion cup and just take the wafer off the top, we will take the bread part together, and then we'll take the juice part together. And so you can just... um, wait for I guess instruction but we'll do the wafer part first which is this the top part of your cup but I want to invite you that if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your savior you are welcome to join us in communion you don't have to be a member of Hillside but we do ask that you've put your faith in Jesus Christ if you haven't placed your faith in Christ you uh this this really isn't a meaningful activity for you Because this is the time that we take to remember what Christ has done for us on the cross. What we will do this morning is we'll take the bread together, like I said, and then we'll take the cup together separately. But 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 24 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Can I encourage us this morning? They're going to sing a song while they're singing this song. Before you take this element this morning that represents the broken body of Jesus Christ, can I challenge you this morning to ask this question? Are you walking in the freedom and the blessing of God's forgiveness? When you take this communion element, are you experiencing the reality and the finality of Christ's work on the cross that he is one for you? Or is there something in your life that you should acknowledge and confess to God that maybe you've been trying to hide? I encourage you this morning to examine your hearts and confess your sin to God and experience the blessing of forgiveness. God's promise is the blessing of forgiveness. As you're ready, would you take the bread portion of this communion uh, in your own time? You guys would take your cup with me.
First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, it says this. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I want to encourage us as we take this cup this morning that represents the shed blood of Christ for the covering of our sins. I'd like for us to think about Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. They say this, He, being Jesus, has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has done it. That's good news. And as we partake of this cup together, we can say with David from Psalm 32, verse 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's partake of the juice together.